I'm here with Michael Gallipo. Mike, thank you so much for being with me. You, you just mentioned that you grew up, which is an interesting short, it was an interesting way to say this, like really directly. Like I grew up in an institution. Can you talk about that and what that means? That sounds like such a perverse thing that should never happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really strange way to form uh, an experience and identity. Uh, and one of the products of the drug war, you know, I grew up in, in Willimantic, Connecticut. And at the time when I was growing up in the, in the 90s, the 80s, the 90s, and early 2000s, uh, it was known as Heroin Town. Mm-hmm. And so we were very heavily impacted by, you know, drug war response. And one of the consequences of that was that young children, myself included, were taken from the homes of their parents. How old? I was 12. Mm. So I hadn't even reached my teenage years yet. And so I was moved into uh, a, an emergency stay at a mental health hospital. It was during that time that the doctors who were there had placed me with several diagnoses, um, nearly all of which have now been removed from my medical record because they were inaccurate. But those diagnoses were used to justify placing me into what was deemed a higher level of care. And that higher level of care is an institution. And the institution where I was, uh, was called Mount St. John's. And there are many, many, many such institutions like this uh, we don't often talk about them. They're not on the front page of our newspaper. They're not the thing that, you know, the politicians get up to the mic to speak about. Yeah. They're kind of like America's dirty little secret. And yeah. there were hundreds and hundreds of young men living there simultaneously. So over the, the period of five years that I stayed at this institution, there were thousands of these young men who came through this institution, mostly um, people of color from communities of color, from poor urban communities. And many of them had, you know, past criminal histories. Many of them had been involved in in drug war circumstances themselves. And many of them had nowhere to go when they would leave. And they would get moved in and out. They would get shuffled around. Sometimes they would stay for a while, like myself. Um, People would say there are sometimes four, five, six, ten years. Uh, But the thing that we all had in common was that this place was not safe. There were multiple suicides and suicide attempts. There was male-on-male sexual assault. We weren't allowed to have any contact with the outside world. It was operated like a prison. What was the basis for for sending you there in the first place? Was it that that your your guardian's were deemed unworthy and incapable of having you in their care? It it wasn't even, so in in Connecticut, they have what's called a family with service needs petition. And so you don't even need to have a a crisis worker intervene to actually surrender a child into care. um, That all they would need to do is to, you know, clear the court and essentially convince your parents that this, this was for the best for the child um to place them into care so this was like this was your folks agreed that this would be best case scenario for you yes got it because of the environment i was growing up in because of 
just how, how dangerous it, it seemed to be. Um, and it really was not a better situation at all. And that's, that's ultimately what uh, DCYF, the Department of Children, Youth and Families, which is what that department's called in Connecticut, uh, had ultimately decided when they removed me from placement. So, you know, during that time, there was a kind of a really interesting, my first experience of drugs was in this facility. And in this facility, by the time I was 13, I was being forced to take 13 pills a day. And this is something that was like, you know, it was like something that people would joke about inside the facility, you know, because people were on lots and lots of medications, but you didn't have a choice. What were you they? weren't given the option. Um, there were, you know, sedatives, anti-anxiety medications, antipsychotics, um, stimulants. I mean, every variety of medication to try to control and level a person out. Um, those were the medications that were used. I was first introduced to benzodiazepines in this environment. I was first in, in, introduced to amphetamines for uh, ADHD diagnosis um, in this environment. Um, and so many of the, you know, much longer term in life, quote unquote, drugs of abuse, um, they were introduced in this environment where I was also exposed to an enormous amount of traumatic experience. And there were staff there who could help you if you decided that you did not want to take your medications and you did not like taking drugs or want to be drugged or want to be under the influence of any kind. And they would send these 350 pound guys to, they would call a code. You'd hear it go over the intercom. Everybody knew the different codes. So they always knew who was getting pinned down somewhere in the facility. Mm. And they would do a five point safety restraint and they would force you to take these drugs. And if you still continued to struggle, if you put up any kind of a physical resistance or there was any like struggle or violence, then they would put you into a little cubicle that was about four by eight. It had a wooden board that you could sit on like a bench or lay down, depending on how you how long you were there. And they could hold you in isolation until you submitted to doing whatever it was that they told you you needed to do. And I, I've spent, you know, weeks of my life on end in total isolation during my teenage years um, because of being sent to those rooms. And they would sit a staff at the door and the door, you know, the staff was there to keep an eye on you. And you would literally be not allowed to do anything. You could just sit there and wait and sit there and wait and sit there and wait. Is, it, is this a government funded facility? Yeah, so that was one of the things I found out. The, the operations of the facility had changed quite a bit um, during my time there. When, when I was first introduced, I was placed as a DCYF case referral over time, what ended up happening is the facility became more justice involved. Hmm. And so the operations became stricter and ran more like a prison facility because they would get paid $33,000 a year per child for the DCYF placements. And they were getting roughly $90,000 a year for the criminal justice referral placements. So by the time I left, there were only three people who were left in the entire facility who were DCYF placements. Um, and of the last five, two of them had been serial raped. Two of them had attempted and one of them had completed successfully uh, a suicide. And I was literally the only one who didn't have any incidences of self-harm. I, I had a lot of history of fighting. I, I got really skilled at survival through 
just combating with people. And, and I had kind of earned a little bit of respect uh, with the people that were there. And that mostly came out of, you know, a couple of incidences. There was one where a young man was um, raping my, my bunkmate. And he was 13, my bunkmate. The kid who was raping him was 16. And, I mean, we devised this plot to kind of, like, basically jump him in the, in the bathroom during shower time when he would go to try to do his thing. And so I came up behind him, and I, I hit him so hard, his face went straight into the brick wall, and he just fell to the ground like a sack of potatoes. Hmm. And I left him there for dead. Uh, it was a few days later that I had my first experience of uh, understanding what organized crime and institutions brings when I got taken prisoner by some of his, you know, group members. And I was held prisoner and tortured for three days while the staff thought I was AWOL, which is what the other students who were there had told them. So they had, so, there was, there's a lot to respond to and I should, but what's on my mind is that they made no distinction between the a Department of Children and Families referral and someone who's referred there through the justice system. Once you were inside of that institution, everyone was just everyone and they were treated the same. Everyone was just everyone. The only exceptions were the DCYF placements who had been there like myself for so yeah. long that we had, like I had literally completed every class that they had available in their school. It just wasn't set up anymore for long-term care placements. So they had to let me go to public school and they would threaten me all the time that they were going to take my level, they were going to take me back out of school, and then I, you know, potentially wouldn't be able to finish school because there would be no way for them to teach me. Um, and so this was always going on. There was this kind of tug of war and being told that I, I wouldn't be able to go to school or I wasn't going to be allowed to leave the facility. Um, and then that would, of course, be accompanied by periods of forced isolation. So you, you I mean, can I, just, I feel like it's like you can imagine – someone you know instead of an after-school program they go to a prison and so they're you know, it's like you're going to school like someone normally goes to school but then you're socializing with people who are there by virtue of the justice system maybe through no fault of their own maybe so but it just seems like a rough crowd and a strange like a bizarre placement for somebody i don't know i'm not i know i'm preaching to the choir i'm just um just so people know i don't really know much about you before we started talking so I'm at, in real time trying to wrap my mind around that situation, that placement, the the actual basis for it, the rationalization for it. Yeah, the, the rationalization for it came from two things, an incident where my mom had thrown me out and I wasn't particularly willing to come back because she had done that a lot. And I was just tired of being thrown out of the house and not knowing where I was going to sleep at night. So I had found another place to stay. And I was fine. I had actually been there for a while. My grandmother called DCYF because she was concerned. She found out when I came for my birthday party. And I just started to feel really uncomfortable with all my family there. And my mom was pretending like everything was fine. Everything was not fine. So it got to a point where, like, they wanted to do the whole thing with blowing the candles out and singing happy birthday. And I'm like, I pulled my mom into the hallway and I was like, listen, mom, I, I'm just, I, I really don't belong here. I'm, I'm going to go. And my grandmother overheard that conversation. So she called DCYF. That was like the triggering incident Yeah. Um, that got DCYF involved. So of course they sent the cops, 
with you know shields and guns and body armor with social workers they showed up at the place that i was staying in the middle of the night and essentially kidnapped me that's i mean so that's that's the that's the rationalization for your placement there which is that's that's one level and then the other the other bit i was thinking about is the higher order like what is the rationalization for that institution combining those types of communities together in one central place like that how that could be deemed okay brushed under the rug well they did ultimately close that facility down (coughs) what was it what was it called mount st john's and it was in river connecticut I've heard of places like this existing. I did a piece on like the Elan school. There's a place called the family school in New York, but these are those places like boarding schools where you send, you know, kids as a last resort. They wouldn't have been able to function as like an actual state run facility because no one would have had it. I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, totally. Interesting. It could exist. Yeah. I I, I was just trying to, you know, set the stage a little bit. Yeah. Yeah kind of give you some idea of of where I came into my life experience with the drug war. Sure. You know, because it was long before, you know, I even was out in the world. I had this formative experience. So, you know, by the time I got released from there, all of a sudden they decided the, you know, the DCYF supervisor decided the facility was too unsafe. And so they needed to send me back to my parents. Of course, the same parents who'd been throwing me out for years. So, I was home for all of two days before I was back out on the streets and it was really hard for me to find somewhere to go because I wasn't 18 yet. And so I, I was able to finally get myself into a family shelter where I met my recruiter and ultimately joined the armed forces. Um, so all of this stretch in my life, you know, I've been, you know, on and off of prescribed medications, yeah. you know, finally off more so because of being in the shelter and not, having benefits and if you're not 18 you can't just go sign up for benefits so i had been off of medication for some time and so when i met with my recruiter he had had me evaluated independently and it was decided that i didn't have all these mental health conditions that they had diagnosed me with and um i was able to get cleared to join the army so i did so to recap and i know that you probably just told that story like a whirlwind and just did a, a hit it with a broad brush. But I mean, you were in this facility, you were being the way that they controlled you rather than just seeing, you know, maybe we'll give him a direction and it, hopefully he can do it. And if not, we'll work with them. It was like, let's skip the direction part. Let's give the kind let's give him the kinds of drugs that'll either sedate him or keep him focused on something and, and that'll take care of it. And you were on 12 or 13 kinds of drugs. And yeah, I mean, you were, as people were being phased in through the justice system and less so as like a, like a, a charitable organization for people who are from rough homes generally, and more like people are there because in a punitive sense, you're noted. I mean, your rape is common. It happened in the same room as you to someone you were close with. You retaliated on that and were tortured by a group. And to know, you know, with no consequence, you and you finally got out, and you're trying to go about your business and do the best you could, go through school. I mean, well, in, I in, your, in your formative in years, What's that? I got put in. I got put in isolation. Oh, for, uh, oh right, right. When I when I showed back because up, because they thought you were AWOL. 
they thought I was AWOL. I was hiding under the staff desk. I managed to escape during, well, like, because, like, every, every, there's, like, a huge, there's, like, a program of things that people do. You can go down, there's, like, a rec hour to go down to the gym and play basketball. Sometimes they'll have outdoor rec. You know, it's run like, like a prison. You know, you have a rec schedule, you have an activity schedule, you have a class, like a school schedule. Uh, so they'll call you down and the staff will walk you from the office to this other place. The whole place is locked. You're never allowed to leave. You can't just go anywhere, you know. So it's it's essentially for all intents and purposes. When I got to prison, I knew exactly what to do because it was what I grew up in. Like there was no differentiation from having been in prison to say that what I grew up in was any different. So you were, once you were, uh, once you were able to reconcile those mental diagnoses, you were able to, that got you, that was your ante into the armed forces. And how did you fare there? Um, I, I did really well. I was at the top of my class. Um, it was actually at the end of my AIT and I was um, actually going out a little bit more with some of the folks that I was serving with and I had a couple episodes where like I got into some heavy drinking and decided that you know I probably shouldn't drink and get some support so I decided to like try out going to some AA meetings and you know as I was talking in you know one of these meetings and they were on post so it was totally different than you know what I've experienced outside of that it's all people from the armed forces and you know, basically what I said there got back to the senior officers about what I had gone through in DCF and hmm. what had happened. And so they called me in to do a fit for duty evaluation. And I was ultimately discharged from the armed forces. They uncovered my records from DCYF. They found the old diagnosis. Wow. Um, they basically said, because I didn't get a waiver for those diagnoses that I wasn't eligible to continue. Um, they were getting ready to deploy our unit directly from training because I was literally in the last week of classes. I was graduating as the distinguished honor grad from Patriot Missile School. So I had a level seven top secret security clearance. I'd gotten a perfect score on my ASVAB. I was graduating with a 97% class average. Um, I was literally the top performing candidate across every domain in my class, including physical fitness, including weapons qualifications. And within a few months after I came home, because they just like discharged me, didn't send me back with my property, didn't send me back with my documentation. Nobody knew where anything was. Um, so I ended up taking the money that I had saved from the year that I had served. And I bought a car and I drove back down to Texas. Because one of the things you have to understand, you can't get a job if you don't have a DD-214. You can't go to college or go to school if you can't produce a DD-214. And you can't apply for benefits if you can't produce a DD-214. What is, what is DD-214? That's your certificate of discharge. You're oh, 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 you oh. discharged okay. from the armed forces. Because the presumption you. is if you don't have these documents, then you might be AWOL. Right. So... Again, another situation where I, I kind of slipped through the cracks. Nobody seemed to know where my documents were or where my property was. The VA was telling me that ARCOM had them. ARCOM was telling me that the treatment facility must have them. And the treatment facility was telling me that the VA should have them. All in all, it ended up taking them five years 
to finally locate my documents. That's a long time. What did you do in the meantime? I was chronically homeless. Mm. I lived outside. I was so sickened by what happened when I got back down to Texas because I went back to my unit and I found my property in the lockup. They have like a, a basement like locker system for when people are deployed to lock up their valuables. And I found some of my personal property, like my stereo system and my television in one of the cadre's offices. So I had talked to the maintenance guy who I knew. I went down to JAG to file a report. JAG went down to investigate the report. By the time they'd gotten there, the officer had told the maintenance worker and everybody else in the unit that they had heard about me coming back and that if anybody had talked to JAG, then they were going to go home just as quickly as I had. And so nobody was willing to give a statement. Nobody was willing to talk to the JAG officer. So I wasn't ultimately able to um, recover any of my property. And, and this is kind of like the part of my story where like things kind of take a turn towards substances, right? Because like, I feel like I've lost everything. I've lost all faith in my country. I have nobody. I had no support system. I couldn't access benefits. I wasn't allowed to work or go to school. So I did the only thing that there was to do. I went and I left the United States and I went down to Mexico and I went to a bar and I started getting drunk. This this was at the onset of your what you call the chronically homeless phase for five yeah. years, or was this somewhat? Yeah, so that yeah, so right, you, at, right at the beginning. And were you living there? I mean, you said you were homeless, but were you? I mean, I was just, just literally over. staying in my car. I didn't know where I was going to go, <clears throat> so I ended up meeting somebody at the bar, and they let me stay with them. And I stayed with them for a while, uh, drank a lot, like a lot, a lot. Uh, I ended up finding out about my unit getting ambushed. A bunch of my good friends ended up being killed in action, taking POW. So it was just like trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. And I, I just couldn't take anymore. And drinking was probably the best thing that I could do because really what I what I wanted to do was to commit suicide. Mm. But the, the drinking gave me a way to avoid that. So this is it's interesting because I know that, you know, it would be easy for someone in your position, depending on what narrative gets you the best reinforcement, to look back and say, and this is where I started drinking and my life fell apart because I was, you know, drinking and I was an alcoholic. It, you're saying that given the circumstances and your options, or at least what you felt like were your options, drinking maybe saved your life. That's how I see it. And it's not the, the, that's the first time when I can say that using substances probably had that effect, but it's not the last time. Tell me more. Yeah. So, you know, after spending a number of years wandering around outside, I drove kind of, you know, I ended up leaving Mexico. Um, I got really, really sick with a case of dysentery of all things and i had a near-death experience and wound up leaving mexico um don't really have a lot of good memory around that i think i think what happened when i when i had my near-death experience there was some memory loss like i think it impacted my brain a little bit so i don't exactly remember leaving mexico like how that came about i remember going to the hospital i remember being in really dire circumstances 
Um, I remember the doctor asking me who my next of kin was. I remember going in and out of consciousness. I remember them telling me they were going to give me a shot to shut down my internal organs because I was literally, when you have dysentery, it will just squeeze you dry like a sponge uh, and push all the fluid out of your body until you die from dehydration. And so I was, I was in really dire straits by the time I got myself to the hospital. Um, but I ended up leaving Mexico, um, traveled the U S, um, about three and a half, four years went by. So, uh, late 2005, early 2006. So fast forward from 2002, 2003 to now early 2006. And I had finally gotten a a job like washing some dishes off the books at one of the local restaurants. I had managed to get like a single room occupancy for like $250 a month. You know, my parents like knew the landlord and it worked something out so I could basically afford to live there. Um, But once I got inside and I wasn't traveling all the time, my mental health really started to unravel. I was on all kinds of prescription medications again, trying to manage my health. I also was continuing to drink, which was compounding that. Um, and, And I also started to use other drugs recreationally. Um, And at at this point in my life, it was really fueling my problems with my mental health and my my post-traumatic stress in a way that was like really not helpful. Yeah. And I had, I had some delusions that had come up that I felt like the government was going to come after me because I had this security clearance and I knew about their weapons and I was a danger to myself. I was a danger to others. I had this whole story in my head that I had built up and of course a lot of that was fueled by the rhetoric around substance use and what we are taught about people using drugs so i i felt like i was a danger to not only myself but to everybody else around me and and i was not i guess shy about acquiring lots of weapons mm. and word kind of got out that i was planning a uh, like a mass execution and my parents finally intervened. And for the first time ever in my recollected life, they actually did something really, really decent for me, you know, and, you know, all, all of what they had done, I, I believed was to some extent well-intentioned, but very misguided, but they actually listened to me and they came up and they begged me to just leave the guns, leave everything behind. Don't take anything go to a hotel, stay there for a night. They had me pull out a map. They said, where do you want to go? I just closed my eyes. I literally pointed blindly at the map, like basically towards the other side of the country. And my finger landed on San Diego, California. So my parents, you know, got me into a hotel, got me onto a plane and I landed in San Diego, California. Of course, it's still, still the same basket case, nut job mess, but now completely different surroundings nice weather yeah beautiful weather and palm trees like i remember getting off the plane and the first thing i did was took a picture of a palm tree with my cell phone and of course i you know i i, I grew up in a generation kind of in between like cell phones and beepers so like yeah, yeah me too kind of resisted learning cell phones especially where i grew up institutionalized like we just didn't have those things yeah um so <laughs> i still had one of those little flip button little three button talk text you know like that kind of phone where you had to push the button three times to make a letter. 
so I didn't really do many yeah, text yeah. messages, you know, but <laughs> I, I, I took a picture of the palm tree and I sent it to my friend and I was like, should I climb it? And I <laughs> remembered like being really happy and I got to this hotel. It was, it was the 500 West on Broadway and they ended up offering me a job. I ended up getting like some nicer clothes. Um, I ended up meeting these guys and that was off the books. So all these jobs were off the books. I still didn't even have my papers yet. Just making cash. Yeah, I was getting paid cash. But, I mean, there was, like, some shady stuff going on at the hotel. It's a whole other story I'm not going to get into. But they offered me a job, so I had a job. So I ended up working there. I ended up meeting these guys at the hotel because I made friends with people who were there and people would come there and party and whatever. So I would, like, hang out with people at the hotel. I ended up meeting a actually a really important person in my life for many years, a girlfriend I had by the name of Helena, who is her own very special brand of, of, of drug user and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll probably tell a little bit more about that here in a minute. But um, I ended up meeting these two guys from Boston named John and Dougie when I was working at the pizza shop. I was working at Broadway Pizza. And they were the ones that first introduced me to the, the medical dispensary. Mm. And I swear, if it wasn't for meeting those two guys and it wasn't for getting to the dispensary and meeting the people there, like I, I wouldn't be alive today. Like oh, really? question in my mind. This I would is- not have been alive today. I would really like to draw this distinction here because uh, actually this is backing up a little bit, but it'd be interesting to get your response to it. I was, as you were talking about being in that institution as when you were in your youth and there was sort of like a conspiracy against you because institutionally, I mean, the, the punishment that you got for being a victim of something was just, I mean, that's insidious. Then you were out and you had the same things sort of happen to you in the armed forces, I was thinking as you said that it would be easy if I were you to become a conspiracy theorist about everything after that, because you have had a history of working your way up and doing all you can to build yourself up like you're supposed to. And then having that taken away from you by virtue of what actually chalks up to a conspiracy against you in some ways. So when you said that, you know, you were, living in this, I guess, shabby place and, you know, trying to work, but you were taking a bunch of drugs and you were drinking, you had that sort of a mindset and it was, I'm sure, easy to cut, even if it, you said, you call it delusional, I'm sure it was, it just, it probably wasn't a very big leap to go from what your reality really was to building a story like that and what tipped you over the edge, you said, was like you used drugs and you had heard stories about what that meant for a person if they use drugs. So you sort of believe that you are this sort of a dangerous, you know, ticking time bomb kind of a person anyway. And then, and if I understand, you didn't really have deep connections with people at that time and friendships. And you just jumped to time where like you get, you go to a place, it's nice weather, you're sort of optimistic. And you mentioned three people who you met who are important in your life. And it's, I, you haven't, said anything else yet and i need to let you talk but i i'm just imagining it's funny because it wasn't that much of a leap to get from like trying to live a normal life and be as healthy as you can to conspiracy theory sort of execution style mentality and i bet it wasn't i'm guessing it wasn't that much of a leap probably didn't feel like it to go from that to actually once you meet people who are good for you in your life to get to like a natural like better mindset well yeah and i mean there was definitely like a lot of brainwash 
and I'm like aware of it is brainwashed now at the time I wasn't, but just like belief systems that were based on what I, what I have been taught. Like I had these very linear black and white beliefs of like, you know, I can drink alcohol and use prescription drugs, even if I'm sniffing them, even if I'm buying them on the street because they're my prescription. Like I had all these rationalizations built up that were based on what I had been taught. And certain things were okay, certain things were bad. And I was very judgmental. It was it was it was very closed minded space that I was living in. Um so I was definitely not the person that I am today. You know, there there's been a couple of things and one of them is what I'm actually about to get to that really transformed my perspective and my relationship to myself. Um uh, such that I don't really even feel that I'm like I'm the same person, but I don't carry myself the same way. I don't hold the same beliefs and I don't, I don't hold the same truths and my character, like the way in which I feel about violence, you know, the sanctity of human life um, are all radically different. I mean, I just, I really didn't understand value in anything because I felt like I was completely worthless. You know, the, the lessons I had been taught by just growing up, was that I was just a piece of trash, that there was no value whatsoever to anything that I did, and that I was I was a danger. You know, once once I started going from what I deemed okay to like dabbling with, oh my God, now I'm doing stuff that's bad, like that became a part of my identity. You know, once I started getting punished for things, you know, and this started at Mount St. John's, but it just got reinforced you know, in adulthood, when I started encountering the justice system after the armed forces, um, you know, getting arrested for criminal trespass, getting arrested for, you know, like breach of peace type of stuff, basically just being criminalized for not having anything and not having anywhere to go and not like just having no value, really just having no value at all in society. Um, I started to internalize this identity where I believed that I was a bad person. Like, I believed that, like, I was a danger to myself and others. Like, I believed that the only thing that I could do correct or that I could succeed in was living outside of, you know, mainstream society, you know, to live on the margins and to hustle and to live in a street life. And it was the only way I survived for a lot of those years. I wouldn't have been alive if I wasn't hustling, if I wasn't selling drugs, if I wasn't doing sex work, if I wasn't, you know, doing all the things that I had to do in order to survive. And those people took care of me. Like, those are the people that didn't let me sleep out in the street when all of the the quote-unquote good people wouldn't let me come anywhere near their house. Mm. Like, I would have been dead if it wasn't for these people. And these were the same people that... The rest of society was telling me were awful, that these were terrible people, that they were lawless, that they were criminals. And and, and it just, it, 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 the only way that I could reconcile was that it was an us and them thing. And that made me a criminal. And that's what I became. It was, it was really, it was the only way that I could see how I fit in the world where I belonged. That's so well put. And I'm like, 
I, I can relate to having that sort of belief system about yourself that you just are bad. I mean, if the word bad means anything, well, that's you. And so if anything that you do to try to make yourself feel better, you're because you're like a criminal and a bad person. Well, every time you try to make yourself feel better, you're just really an accomplice to a new crime because you're, you're just fueling bad people you're, like yourself. So when did you, when were you able to reconcile that? I mean, you had, you had like, a, it sounds like you had a proxy for healthy relationships and they were healthy in the sense that these were people who actually cared about you or at least more than the people who completely shut you out. Um, but when did you reconcile this sort of belief about yourself and us and them mentality with, you know, living a value, more valued life, as you put it? Oh my gosh, that's been a long journey. Uh, and I still struggle with it. Mm. You know, I work in the justice system now. I work, you know, in the county health department. I work with folks who are justice involved. I work directly with our court. I have to say, my first day of work, walking into that jail, you know, I, I had to take a picture on my phone to, like, commemorate this experience because I truly, in my mind, did not believe and did not know, even though I was wearing a badge, I had a key, that I was actually going to go in there and be able to come back out. That's so, uh, yeah. Years I and can only years imagine. later, like, finishing college degrees and getting out of the justice system myself. Like I, I, I mean, shoot, when I, when I saw my rap sheet, just looking at, you know, I have like a dozen page rap sheet. It's like no joke. And just seeing it, looking at all the charges, the amount of traumatic experience that that represents, like, you know, the ways I was taken down by police and like what happened to betrayals and the investigations with the, the snitching and like, people I thought I trusted just stabbing me in the back. Uh, I, I, I had to stop looking at it. I, I, I really just couldn't even look at it. And, and my partner's mother looked at me and she had tears in her eyes. And she was like, my God, Mikey. She's like, thank you for telling us about all this. Back when you very first started dating our daughter, you were completely honest with us. Because she said, if I would have found this and I hadn't talked to you and I didn't know you, and you were just living on the other side of the country with her daughter, I would have been terrified. Wow, that's such a good, that's such an interesting point. So you were always kind of straight up. I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I can't, I can't hide it. I can't hide it. When you, when you uh, started doing work and you were working, now you're involved in the justice system, do you ever, did you ever feel that, I don't know if this is the right term, but like an imposter syndrome, like, if only you guys knew <laughs> who I was, you probably wouldn't want me to be working alongside you or something like that. I mean, not, not in that sense. Like I'm very honest. I'm very transparent and, I, and I'm lucky that the, the role in, in the professional credibility I built for myself has been on like a bedrock of like rigorous self-honesty. And I chose to take a line of work in my field where I had the opportunity to do that. Um, and that was a choice that I made getting out of college. You know, I said, I can either try to bury this, hide it, run from it, pretend, you know, that it never happened. And, you know, years down the road, I'll be able to get a pardon. And then it really will be like it never happened. Um, or I can come out into the field and I can, I can use it, you know, and, and I realized something, something that was really important to me 
Uh, and it was one of the last times, well, probably the two last times that I went to prison. Because something I started to experience when I was going back to prison, um, you know, was that the people that I had grown up with in this facility, like all of these young men that I knew, I knew exactly where I needed to go to find them. All I had to do was go back to prison. And so I was like super aware that I was an exception Mm. to be able to walk away from that system. And that most of those young men that I knew, the people I grew up with, my, my family, never got out. And they had been in that system since they were so young. I mean, how could I really say that they ever had a chance? Yeah. And it's a tragedy. Yeah. And we've created generations of this. I mean, I've had people that I worked with on caseloads that were taken from their parents by DCYF had their kids taken from them while they were in DCYF custody because they were still under 18. And then their kids are now in DCYF placement going through the same cycle of placements. I mean, literally generations of children that never left the system. How can you say that those children ever had a chance? So your perspective is you had chances along the way. And who would you be if you didn't take advantage of them in order to kind of give back? Because, you know, if people who grew up with you, if they wanted to try to find you and had only one guess, they would probably, they probably, they'd probably guess to a prison somewhere, right? Because why wouldn't you be? And so it sounds like you've sort of taken advantage of or having a healthy perspective of just some of the moral luck that you were afforded near the end there, even though you had, I mean, when people talk about trauma, there's a whole range of things they're talking about from something that just sounds like a, you know, a bad weekend or something to like a lifelong series of events like you're talking about. And you could get bogged down by that and just say, you know, I'm so traumatized that I can't do anything. And it sounds like you've, I don't know, there's something about you that feels like you need to actually traverse that. You can't, like, you can't, you don't want to be sitting still and, and bogged down thinking about that stuff. You want to try to make something of yourself, do something with the, the sum of the advantages that you have and push forward so that you can help other people in that, in similar situations. I mean, there's just, there's so many people that have been affected in this way. And it's, it's really the most tragic story of the drug war is what happens to the kids. Yeah. And nobody is out there telling the story. If there is, I haven't really seen it. You know, it's it's something that I'm very aware of as somebody who's lived through that experience. And I take a responsibility that being one of the few, very, very few who've actually gotten out and gotten educated and been able to work myself into a, a position where I can actually have some power to change things a little bit, to to use that experience and to build relationships with people in such a way that they hear my story as something that's genuine and, and that it's not just me. Like my voice is one of hundreds of thousands, if not millions in this country of people who've been affected this way by what we do. And so I find it impossible 
for me to look at somebody and say, do you have a substance use disorder? Do you not have a substance use disorder? When in the background of that, if you look back at somebody's social history, or if you even just look at how a society on a social level is affected by the way we treat people in this country, it's not normal. Yeah. It's not healthy. So does it surprise me that people use drugs now more than ever when that's in the background? I mean, I was taught as a native person that we're connected, you know, not even just to ourselves, but to the plants, to the animals, we're all connected. So to see all of the suffering that's happening in the world around us and think that there aren't going to be people who are affected by that. I mean, I, I see substance use as a natural response. It's compassionate. I, I can't have any judgment against somebody who's going through something like that. So like talking about, so asking, oh, do you have a substance use disorder? I mean, the thing, the tragedy that you see, the destructiveness that comes associated with people whose lives also include substances uh, it's almost like that's just it's just the wrong question. Like, yeah, certainly it's true you can you you can have a relationship with something like a drug or an involvement. It can become destructive. You can build an essence around it, and you know, and that can take away from your ability to generate other positive experiences. But the way you're looking at it is like is a, a lens that a lot of people can't or unable to take because you're just not aware of it. Because they're just not aware of it. But it's like there's a whole lifestyle. You know, there's a whole entire life process uh you know who you know how you grew up that makes a person who they are and that's that's the prologue it forms like who they are now but it doesn't need to you know write the story for the rest of their lives and certainly you wouldn't want like which drugs they use to to be the scapegoat of why they you know in a rough spot now yeah i mean it, it to me i see it as like you know, there there's symptoms of a deeper ailment. Yeah. If yeah, if you could it. call it an ailment. And and I don't think that most substance use is is a response to uh resolving ailments. I think certainly a large amount of it is, but there's also just self exploration and opportunities to experience like new shifts in consciousness, new connections, new relationships. I mean, some of the most meaningful relationships I've formed have been with people through using drugs together. And things that I learned about myself in the process of doing that informed who I ultimately became as a person in recovery. And so I'm sorry, I, I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for those experiences. So I have a gratitude. Like, I don't have to look back on it and be like, wow, that was terrible. It's, it's this really odd one-dimensional view that I see in people in recovery towards yeah. themselves and their own history where we don't even take the time to validate what we got out of the experiences that we had. So it was a true. growth process. Yeah. You know, for me, I've been on, I've been on this kind of that time in California set that it was like a turning point in my life with, and you named it meaningful relationships, jobs, housing, right. And in the way that I do coaching, I use health, home purpose, community are like the kind of the, the pillars of, recovery that's how i kind of work yeah. with people is around those basic core domains um but you know and also just discovering for myself there was a moment of of just like a cognitive disconnect i experienced a, a, an, an event that produced so much dissonance 
to the narrative that I had been taught about substances and about prohibition and about the drug war. You know, I went from being institutionalized to serving in the armed forces. You know, I was heavily, heavily institutionalized. I was brought through that rhetoric through and through and through and through. Right. So that was a part of what I still carried with me when I landed in California. So I'm so guys- I'm so glad you brought us back there because I've been meaning to say a few times uh, <laughs> you, you, you had been meaning to tell that story. And I kept interrupting and I would say, like, oh, let me get through this and then we can come back there. So, yeah, please. You brought up two key things. One, I can't I cannot interrupt you anymore for telling me what happened when you landed in California and what you experienced and why those relationships mattered. And then along the way, I think you will anyway, but just say more once you get around to a good point to do it, say more about relationships with substances and, and, you know, what you actually are getting out of the experience. I like that you said, you know, a lot of people think they're being compassionate and like woke or something like that. If they say substances aren't bad, they're just a way of dealing with, you know, horrible pain. And they can be that, but also they're just a thing. You know, they can enhance your experience without having to have had incredible pain in the first place before landing on using it. And so, and yeah, anyway, I, yeah, I want to hear, I want to hear more about what happened in California and your various relationships with drugs. Well, it was relationships with other people, really. That that was eye opening. I mean, yeah, yeah. drugs were were part of it. I mean, the the medical cannabis experience was amazing but it was what happened when i got there and what i learned let me just let me just uh, yeah i i know i know that's what you're saying but i was just saying i was just planting a flag on that statement that you made about drugs that they're not you know the the idea that the only way they can be good is if people use drugs because of horrible experiences you were you had like a more common sense idea about that which is that drugs are just drugs and you can use them you know extemporaneously for whatever reasons Anyway, yeah, just want to make sure. Or, I didn't. For, or for no reason. I mean, no, for no reason. Yeah, right. Drugs all the time out of boredom. Yeah, so you can't, we're, we're like prevented from, we're prevented from experiencing them in a way that we can be reflective about it because we have to feel guilty about it. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I think that narrative of shame was really what, what ran deep through me. And a lot of what I dealt with, why I hid and why I didn't actually talk about what I was going through. Um, and that was probably the most healing and transformative part of where I got to, but going back to what happened when I, when I met I'm muting my mic now. <laughs> and I got to this dispensary, you know, I got an opportunity. The guy really liked me. I was finally surrounded by people that I was like, wow, these people are so nice. This place is just very nice. It was like a lounge with like a couch and patients would come in and they would hang out and they would, you know, spend time with the people who volunteered and people who worked there who were there just to spend time with the patients so that we, like a lot of our, our patients were in like severe palliative care, had cancer, had glaucoma, had all kinds of major, major diseases that they just didn't really get a lot of uh, social life. They didn't get a lot of social socialization. So it was also a place for like people to get connected and people to have other people to spend time with and not be isolated and so there were a lot of benefits of what happened in the dispensary and there was one thing in particular it was one day and it was early in my time there that really just opened my eyes to something that I, I never quite expected to see and I was I was sitting on the couch and kind of the way that 
the room was set up like the couch there was like a divider there was like a pre-room with like a side room where they had all the jars and all the cannabis and then there was like in the back through this beaded curtain there was a lounge and then against the far wall like in the corner there was like aeroponics cloning system and like some like you know different things that they were doing to prepare you know future generations of medicine um and i i thought i was really transfixed with this aeroponics cloning system and so it, i don't know if anybody here who's watching this has ever seen one but if you haven't i, I strongly encourage going to check it out because uh it, it all the times that i've you know i grew up in eastern connecticut there's farms everywhere i've never seen anything like this this is like the space age of agriculture <laughs> it's really really fascinating and so they grow plants suspended in air and they have like misters on timers and hmm. lights everywhere. I mean, a little more common now we've had cannabis out for a while, but this was early 2006, early medical cannabis industry in California. Uh, I don't think too many States even had medical at that time. So it was just brand new. And I was new to the program. I was, you know, kind of resistant to starting the treatment. I didn't really believe like what it could do for me, I was really skeptical based on everything I had been taught, right? So they convinced me to go see a doctor. You know, I'd gone and saw the doctor. I talked to them about what I was feeling, you know, what was coming up. So that's how I ended up volunteering at this place, right? Because they were like, well, why don't you spend some time here and just get to learn a little bit more and get to meet some people, you know? Maybe that would help, you know? Don't be, at lo you know, don't be alone at home, Actually, come be with some people. You can come volunteer here as much as you want. So I was welcome, you know. So this guy came in, and it was like maybe like my second week, beginning of my second week there. I wasn't there very long. And this guy comes in. He's got a C&I dog, you know, nice German Shepherd. He's on one of those harnesses. The guy's got these dark sunglasses on. He's got, you know, kind of kind of like a jacket blazer type of thing going on. He looked kind of snazzy. And he had, a, he had a hat on. So he had like a hat and the sunglasses. He kind of like looked like one of those guys from like like a bad detective movie kind of a thing. But um, so he comes in and so I'm like, okay. And he sits down and they're like, well, you know, he's blind. He can't really see. So do you mind rolling the joint? And because I had spent so much time living on the streets, I knew how to roll because I survived my cigarette smoking by rolling butts that I would find on the street. That was like, an effective way to always have tobacco. You could always pinch out somebody's butt and you would always have tobacco. So I, that was one of the things that they had me do would be to, you know, roll joints for patients. So I rolled this guy a joint and then they were like, well, you know, he can't really see to light it. Cause I was going to try to hand it to him. And they're like, well, why don't you light it for him? And then, and then put it in his hand so that way he can smoke it. And so I did that. And then I'm back looking at the aeroponics cloning system. So I'm not really paying much attention to this guy. And it was something that like, I noticed after like a minute or so, or maybe maybe it was a couple minutes, um, out of the corner of my eye, I like saw some movement. And I, and I looked over and I noticed that the guy was petting his dog. And then I, and my eyes just kind of followed up his arm till I noticed his face. And it took me a minute to recognize what was happening because for one he was no longer wearing sunglasses so like that i noticed straight away but then i i was looking more closely and i realized that his eyes were focusing on looking at his dog and i was so profoundly confused with what i was experiencing 
Like I, I had absolutely no way to explain what was happening. I just met somebody who was blind just a minute ago. And this person was clearly looking at their dog. And it was like, it, it, the cognitive dissonance was so significant that I couldn't even process what was happening. And I must have had a really weird look on my face because one of the people there like noticed and said something and they were like, oh, <laughs> yeah, he was blind. Yes, he was blind when he came in here. But that's, that's what cannabis does for glaucoma patients. So he can actually see now. And in that moment, it was like, I, I felt like a, like, a, like a javelin went through my heart. It was like, did I just like miss like, you know, Jesus sneaking in the room and putting his hands on the guy and healing him? And That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Happened like, uh... to be looking the other way and I missed it, you know, but no, it was, it was just how miraculous this plant was and what it did for this person. And in that moment, it hit me. It, it just like came down on top of me. Like I was getting buried underneath a building how many other people like that are out there? Mm. How many other people are we be like forcing to go navigate the world blind that don't need to? Like figuratively and literally. No, like 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 literally. Like I was like, how many others, how many more are there out there? We need to get all of them to do this. Like, it was just, it was so apparent to me that what I had been taught about the drug, about cannabis, about the drug war, about what was good and bad, it just got smacked upside the face and body slammed. How long did it take you to generalize from, you know, all right, marijuana does this for people with glaucoma and people with glaucoma by and large aren't allowed to experience this this beneficial effect to uh oh wait maybe this is true for various reasons for all sorts of drugs depending on who wants to take them why they want to take them i i didn't really take it that far what what i realized in that moment and what i was present to i was really upset because i knew in that moment i had been lied to Mm -hmm. like i was profoundly upset and i was angry that we were okay with doing this to other people like hundreds or thousands maybe even millions i didn't know i i still don't know i haven't researched the numbers but how many other people out there like this and then i started over time to hear other stories about what it did for childhood epilepsy and then i started to learn about what other drugs did for people and then my life was changed when I started really taking my medical cannabis treatment seriously and educating myself about the plant and how to use it as a medicine, which is different. It, it's different than just using it recreationally. And, and uh, well, I, I, for one, I, I'm very selective about strains. The biodiversity of the cannabis plant is extremely important in terms of what it can do for somebody's individual biology and cannabis affects different people differently so it's important to be knowledgeable of your own 
internal biology, like what's important to your system. And I was very lucky. It wasn't at that time, but it was actually, um, this is where the next part of my transformation journey occurred um, because of the young woman that I was living with. So shortly after this experience, you know, just a few months into my stay in San Diego, California, they had um, what is, you know, federally known as the, the, the raids that happened. They were very publicized. Um, people were taken into the federal penitentiary on chain gangs. They were detained uh, without formal charges. I was amongst that group. Um, and I was held without charges and without bail uh, until I was taken to TV court. So I spent a few months in San Quentin uh, Federal Christ. Detention Facility. I was so scared when I got there that I broke my hand against the wall to go to the medical unit. I was terrified. How long did you? I did not see that curveball coming. How long did you spend there? I was there for just a couple of months, long enough to lo lose my housing, long enough to lose my job. <sighs> um, so my girlfriend and I, you know, and God bless her, the most incredible woman I probably, you know, her, my current partner, and the one I was married to, my son's mother, four women that have really shaped my life. Um, and she was the first of those four. Um, she just rolled with it. She had been there before. She'd been homeless before. It didn't phase her. And what we ended up deciding was, you know what? I was spending all this time working to pay for our lifestyle that we never actually got to go out and enjoy any of California. And so that was a period of my life where I was homeless. But I, I would tell people that I'm actually home more. Yeah. And that, that, was, that was a phrase that I would use to kind of joke with people because home was wherever I was. So I was always home. Didn't really matter where I was. I like that. Um, but, but it was, again, another turning point because my experience wasn't disempowered. Yeah, you, ch you chose that lifestyle. You got out and you, you chose that lifestyle together. Yeah, when I got out of prison, I realized there was no way that I was going to earn enough money to pay my rent and my back rent. Um, and the best thing that I could do would be to notify them that, you know, basically, I'm sorry that this happened. You know, this is what happened. There's really nothing that I can do. And hopefully someday I can pay you back. But I'll, I'll move out and I won't give you any trouble. I'll leave the place in good condition. And we left and we moved out to, to Ocean Beach. Um, because I had a broken hand. Um, there, you know, there was still definitely some drug use involved, but a little bit harder drug use got involved. Um, I remember that that was the first time I had ever experienced, um, injectable drugs. And I remember, um, using opiates and my partner would do the injecting for me. Cause I didn't, I didn't know how to do that. Um, and I remember at one point, I, I think I even injected an ecstasy pill because I, I couldn't find any opiates, you know, for my hand. I was injecting them into, into my broken hand. Um, and it had, like, little brown flecks in the pill. And I was like, well, there's probably opiates in it. So we'll do, we'll do that. And I remember going into the bathroom at the pizza shop and trying to hide it and kind of the weird feeling that I had around it. And it was at one of those moments where things could have gone in a lot of different directions because it was very early on in that phase of substance use and we ended up running into these people who 
had a purple hippie bus and they invited us to go with them. So we got onto this purple hippie bus and we traveled, you know, we, we kind of went up to like Santa Monica and Van Nuys and North Hollywood and um, ended up getting off in Santa Barbara. But, um, you know, they taught me how to make hem jewelry. So there was something that I could do even with my broken hand. Um, and I was able to trade, you know, to get what I needed. So that, that actually helped me out a lot. So when we left them in, in Santa Barbara, um, my, my partner, the girl who I was with, everywhere we would go, she always had this really incredible spirit where she would find ways to be generous with people. Like, even if we had absolutely nothing, like her spirit was just so kind. She just like wanted to give to people. So when we were in Santa Barbara, homeless, drinking, using drugs, like all the above, um, I was working with a broken hand. I ended up going to this day labor place um, because Helena had gotten sick and she came down with pneumonia and she desperately needed medicine or she was probably going to die. So the only thing that probably got me through those days uh, when I was, I was literally operating a 65 pound hydraulic jackhammer drilling clay for, for a mansion in Santa Barbara with a broken hand <laughs> was the fact that I had, you know, some, some drugs at my disposal and I could use them on the job. And, you know, the guys I worked with who were mostly Latin American really were all doing basically the same thing. Uh, so nobody, nobody really thought much of it. You know, we were all kind of like, you know, apples, apples and apples, apples and pears, whatever you drink. I do Coke. I do this. I do that, whatever. It was all kind of like, everybody had a respect for everybody else for what they did. You know what I mean? There's no yeah. judgment. Uh, which was kind of cool. It was kind of cool. Um, but again, it was another circumstance where she probably would have been dead if it wasn't for the fact that I had that extra edge to get me through, you know, doing something that would have been impossible. Very interesting. Cause I, I already liked that, you know, that's in the standard story that you'd hear at the point that someone started injecting drugs, that's where you'd say like, uh, and it all went downhill from there. Your perspective again on this is that, your life was headed in a trajectory. It didn't have to be either horrible or wonderful, but just you're kind of doing what you were doing. And every decision you made led to new experiences. I, like the drugs don't really matter that much until it gets to the point where you're saying like you had pain and you needed a job and you wouldn't be able to do the job if it weren't for drugs being able to take the edge off. So drugs were part of like that community and they were part of you being able to live just at all, <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, being able to make a living. Well, and I mean, there was this, like, I mean, really deep, meaningful relationships with other people who were using drugs, mm. particularly my partner. I mean, she had, I mean, I credit her with having saved my life. You know, I had an overdose in a motel room. We were partying with this guy, David, who had done like 20 years in the federal pen. And he was a crack smoker. She, she liked smoking crack. I like, I really liked smoking crack for a while so much so that I, I choose not to smoke crack, you know, at, at this point in my life or probably maybe, maybe not ever, unless I'm just ready to hang it up. Mm. Um, because I just, I, I have a relationship to crack cocaine that I just enjoy it way too much. Mm. <laughs> it's way too much. It's, it's just far too much fun for me. You, you box on uh, other parts of your life because you focus on crack because you like it so much. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, it's crack. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, certain drugs I just enjoy too much. And I know, like, it's probably not a, unless I really want to indulge 
and and go off on a you know a tangent then you know i just don't partake that's yeah. fine if, yeah. if other people choose to that's fine too but but here's the thing that you know i had an overdose on crack cocaine this was the first time i ever experienced an overdose and if it wasn't for my partner and our friend david like actually caring about my well-being and like taking the time to explain to me what happened and like calmly remind me like again and again, like Mikey, we can't let you use anymore. Like you just had an overdose. You were just having seizures. You were like convulsing and twitching and banging into the wall. I had no memory of this. Like I completely blacked out. And then next thing I know I'm sitting in a chair and all my friends are like looking at me, like I've got six heads (laughs) and I'm like, guys, what's going on? And, you know, my immediate reaction was like, fuck, like, I just got robbed of my hit. Like, that was like the best hit ever. And I have no recollection of it. Like, I just got completely robbed of my hit. I was pissed. I was like, God, give me another hit. And they wouldn't do it. You know, they would not do it. Uh, and thank God for that, because I, I, I wouldn't be alive, it, it, potentially, if, if I could have just continued to do what I was going to do. But it wasn't like EMTs or cops or people in recovery. It was drug users, people like me that were looking out for me. So like this narrative of like, like the selfish, self-destructive, like, you know, no respect for human life, that narrative that's out there right now, man, that has not been my experience. That has not been my experience. The most compassionate, caring, selfless people that I met were drug users still are. And you were Uh, able to use it in a way that it, you're using drugs to actually show the respect for your own life. Yeah. Which I think that uh, that's the mo- that's the most interesting. I mean, it's all interesting. But so, how did you get from from that point to uh, I guess where you are now? Question one and question two is: Do you still use any? Dr- I mean, if you want to come on and say this, but do you still use drugs, either licit or illicit? Um, and how frequently, and what kind of relationship do you have with substances now? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I do still use drugs. Um, I had a, a really transformative experience that kind of brought me to a new phase in my recovery process with psychedelic mushrooms. Hmm. I had met um, Alex and Allison Gray at um, the first Woodstock reunion after the owner of the farm had died. I'd been invited there by a friend. And it was like right after I had just finished doing the memorial ceremony, which was beautiful. And I was leading a drum circle on this huge 60-inch drum. Um, right in the center of this gathering with like hundreds and hundreds of people there honoring this this man who owned the property where where this historic festival had happened. Um, and so I was spending time with his wife and his children and all the people around them. It was beautiful. And I met Alex and Allison Gray, and I'd really been struggling with certain aspects of my post-traumatic stress disorder. And they were pieces that were keeping me in place where, like, I wanted to stop drinking, but I couldn't. And I and I just I was aware of it. There was a desire in me to do something different, but the the amount that I was impacted by night terror specifically, and the way that I was able to avoid dreaming by drinking, like the drinking was the only way that I could get a quiet night's sleep. Interesting. And I could not stop drinking because it was more unmanageable for me to deal with the alternative than it was for me to to continue drinking. And I just had this feeling that if something didn't change, that I was just going to die that way. 
and I just didn't want to do that. So I was really open to this suggestion and they suggested that I try a couple of things. And it was basically a protocol. They called it the Berkeley protocol. And it was using like a, a, a self-narrative. So telling the stories of the, the pathways in your brain, the experiences that you're having these night terrors about to essentially remap them in the brain. And you would introduce a, a very low dose of psilocybin. Uh, and over time, you would increase the dose and you would re-record the experience that you had after you took the dose. So you would basically re-experience by listening to this self-narrative on your headphones and you would record a new narrative and you would do this over and over and over again. So every session you're recording a new narrative and then you would meditate and you would listen to it every single day in between for an hour. So each time you did it, you would listen to the previous to the narrative one previous time ago. You would listen to the one previous, and then in session, you would record a new experience. Right, right, right. And so every time like you, you had a new session, it was it. only the last one. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, you, you and train, so yeah. essentially cognitive remapping. Yeah, and I, and I was able to, and this is my understanding of it, and maybe there's neuroscience to support this or not, but. Um, I was able to basically rewrite the pathways in my brain to circumvent those particular pathways that were causing me problems and to prime new pathways and reinforce that with new stem cell growth from taking the psilocybin. I'm not like a neuro speak kind of a guy, but the, like there's a folk psychological sense in which that just is the case, you know, like you can, t and just like in plain talk, no matter what happens, Neuro neurologically it's like that makes sense you know you're able to gradually tell a new and more comfortable story about who you are and yourself and memories and things like that so either way to me that it, it makes sense so i was doing that and alongside of that in my treatment program i was doing yoga so there were two things happening simultaneously so i can't like say that i can say it was one thing yeah. because I was doing both. Yeah. But after that year, it was the first time I'd ever been able to be successful in trying to do step work because I just couldn't stop using so nobody would actually do it with me. Um, and I didn't have the desire to drink anymore. My night terrors went away. Almost all the symptoms, I did a like a single subject research design and I actually journaled and tracked a lot of this because I was also transitioning off of a lot of medications at the same time. I was able to, in like a two-year time span, um, and I tracked it all. I journaled it. I used a mixed methods approach. I was using objective measures, and I was also doing extensive journaling. I was able to stop drinking. I was able to come off of, I was on gabapentin, naproxen. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. There's like a synthetic opiate that's like a tramadol. Um, there, there's a whole array of drugs I was on um, and drinking. I was able to. I didn't even want to drink anymore. Like that just like evaporated. I just like didn't even care about it. Um, and I still feel that way. And I, I was able to come off of all my medication, which was more difficult because there were, you know, withdrawal symptoms, particularly of the gabapentin. Um, but I was able to do that with the help of medical cannabis. Um, I was able to get placed into medical cannabis by the drug court, which was a huge help. I'm pretty sure I'm the first patient in Connecticut ever 
to get put into the medical cannabis program by the drug court doctor because they couldn't treat my health without using narcotics. Like they just couldn't. Um, I have another condition later in life. I found out what I actually have, which is PTSD and ankylosing spondylitis. And I have Tourette syndrome. Hmm. I'm able to treat all three of those conditions with a single daily dose of cannabis at night before bed. That's it. That's all it takes. All the pills gone, the alcohol gone, the cigarettes gone. Do you think you're fighting an uphill battle when you were taking all those substances? Like you, you did narrative work and a lot of the, a lot of the energy you had to spend was like, eventually not having to take those substances anymore in order to quiet everything down. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you could, it's like if you could imagine you could have done that sort of a work and been speaking to yourself, uh, you know, had that kind of a rewrite of your own story before being, I don't know if you're prescribed to them or not, but I mean, prescribed and taking all those drugs, it's like you probably could have noticed, you know, sooner, that all you would need is something like cannabis. I mean, it's, it's remarkable to me to think that I was able to recover from a lifetime of traumatic experience Yeah, in just a few yeah. years. And, and the effects have been long lasting. It's not like I have to do regular sessions of psilocybin. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll choose to partake in sacred plant medicine, like at times when I feel are spiritually important to me. You know, like when I, when I start off like my new season in my sweat lodge and I want to like create a sacred space, like I'll, I'll, you know, consider having a mushroom tea ceremony or something like that and do it communally and, you know, have a set and setting and a, and a tradition and a ritual um, because those things are really important to me spiritually. Like as a Native American, having done a lot to reconnect with my culture, which has been a big part. Yeah. of my experience and going to powwows and, and getting my regalia and actually becoming a part of a clan and, and having my, my, my experiences and my gifts recognized by the elders, you know, the, the healing and the transformative work that I've done and actually having a place for that where, where I have a, a, a place I belong with it. Um, it's all been just incredible. And, None of my recovery is based on total abstinence. That's never been a reality for me. And I don't think that's a reality for a lot of people. The The more I've spoke out about this and I've been open in talking about like my own experience of recovery, not being one dimensional. I mean, I went through like facial reconstructive surgery to help with my breathing. You know, I had to take some opiates for a couple of days after my surgery but as soon as I was able to, I transitioned back to medical cannabis and I was ultimately able to just throw away the rest of the bottle and it wasn't a big deal. Hmm. You know, I had this other experience that was kind of shattering around the myth of alcoholism because I had, I had kind of bought into that a little bit more. I never like had any counter evidence or experiences that told me that like I could control my drinking or I might have a different relationship to it Yeah, at a different time in my life until I went to um, New Orleans for the National Harm Reduction Conference in 2018. Hmm. And I was hanging out with some sex workers I had made friends with. And one of them didn't really even have a place to stay. So I told her she could just stay in my room, whatever. And we were just hanging out. Um, and it was cool because, like, she wasn't used to being in a room with a guy who wasn't trying to get a favor from her. 
<laughs> I was definitely not interested in getting favors because I just wasn't interested. I'd been a sex worker, so it like was kind of like no big deal to me. You know, so it, it was just like, okay, cool. We can just be chums and hang out. So just we went people. out to go get, yeah, yeah, just be people, you know, like just people, people hanging out. There was no agenda. And so we went down to go get po' boys and she orders this like really elaborate smoothie. And she offers me a taste of this smoothie. And I'm probably like, you know, five years abstinent from alcohol, you know? So I grabbed the smoothie and I take this huge sip. And I instantly felt this warm feeling go into my stomach and I tasted the alcohol and I was just like, my gut reaction was just like, ah, ah. I just, I, I didn't, it, I was really looking forward to drinking a smoothie. So when I didn't taste the smoothie, I yeah. had the most profound disappointment that I was just like, I, I wanted a smoothie. You like, <laughs> I felt deprived. I was upset, you know, but then it was like insignificant. I went on with the rest of my day. I didn't beat myself up about it. It was like totally unremarkable. And it didn't actually hit me until I was driving home from Louisiana. Of course, it's a long drive home from Louisiana to the Northeast. I had a lot of time to think. You had time to think. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> you know, so I'm just like driving in the car myself, just like thinking about my experience. And then it like dawned on me. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, but I'm an alcoholic. Right. So like... How come I didn't have that reaction? Like, how come I wasn't, like, throwing myself over the bar, trying right. to, like, you know, empty the, the rest of the machine into my mouth and being drug out in handcuffs and, like, you know, the story that we built around, you know, people with the isms. And then I, I was just like, well, that's really weird because that experience to me was really unremarkable. And it just highlighted to me, like, how silly it was that I had been going all this time terrified like i love music i love art i perform i grew up in dance school like from an early age when i was young i dance um and i do perform now i do a lot of performing i was terrified going into venues i didn't know like what recovery was going to look like if i couldn't use alcohol like how am i going to do this and i was i was like so scared like i would go in with groups of people i would have an exit strategy like I wouldn't let myself like, you know, get too close to the bar or carry too much money on me. Like all these like weird controlling strategies that I developed based on this narrative that I had been taught about what I had to prepare myself for. Right. Because like, right. This, it's like, like an, it's like an allergen, thing. an allergen that could uh, affect you, infect you at any time. Right. Is the yeah. Idea. I could just like break out in handcuffs. The next thing you know, I'm yeah. in prison, yeah. you know, and, and the reality of what actually happened and, and what I realized now happened was like my relationship to the alcohol had changed. Yes. And my relationship to myself had also changed. Mm. And my priorities were just completely different. So when I took that sip of alcohol, there was nothing I was looking to get from it. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I was just disappointed that it wasn't a smoothie. <laughs> And there was really nothing else to get from that. I wasn't ashamed. It wasn't like a relapse. You know, of course, I called my sponsor and I told him the story. And he's like, wow, that's really interesting. And I was really lucky that I had, a, you know, at the time, a sponsor who was really open-minded because, like, I've been on cannabis the entire time I've been in recovery. Like, I've mm -hmm. never had, like, a, a zero abstinence moment in recovery. Like, that's not my reality. And, and it won't be. I, so what I, is a lifelong autoimmune disease that's just 
part of the package. I have to take care of my health. And what that looks like for me is I use cannabis. What and does recovery then mean for you? I mean, you've I'm kind of we've spent the entire time we've been talking sort of defining that, but in a in a sound bite, I guess. I mean, what does it mean? For some some people it means I don't do drugs anymore. To some people it means I've developed a new relationship with drugs. It sounds like to you it means something bigger than just drugs. But uh, I'm interested to get your take. Well, for me, I always just see the drugs as a vehicle to reach something else. Yeah. Right? And I think that's true, just generally. Whatever that is, whether it's meaningful social connection, which I have a lot of, you know, a meaningful intimate partnership with my partner, you know, trusting and loving relationships with myself and with other people, learning to, to live with myself and, and to love myself and being able to have opportunities to be generous and give back to my community. Service is really a bedrock for me of, of my recovery um, because it keeps me connected to what's important to me and the people who are important to me and the work that's important to me. And it makes what I do relevant. And it gives me something to do with my time. That, you know, it doesn't have to be focused necessarily on money. Sometimes I get paid, sometimes I don't. A lot of the times I don't. But I just do what I feel is right. And, and I honor myself. I find space in my life for fun. I try to take care of my mind and my body. You know, by eating healthy. Sometimes I don't. But I try to do things that make, make me feel good in, in a way that feels healthy and feels right for me. You know, going out and traveling and exploring the world. I mean, that period of time when I was homeless, a lot of what allowed me to heal from my trauma was just traveling. Being out in the world, having new experiences, going and seeing new things. It got me out of my head. It got me into my body and it got me out into the world. It got me connected to things and places and ideas and communities that were larger than myself. Hmm. To some extent, do you either expect or do you think that this turns from what you're saying is recovery to like the other side of the scale? So instead of like being recovering that you were just sort of living life or is that where do you think where you're at now in other words like i know people who are bogged down by the idea that kind of well, kind of like you were saying you used you kind of used to live in fear like i can't uh if i touch this if i touch alcohol then something horrible is going to happen so i have to stay on my guard and it sounds like you're not like that now so a lot of people who i talk to say well i'm in recovery they meant that like idea that you had previously do you have a sense that you're sort of beyond that point and maybe you're, you know, you're not looking around for the danger, but you're just sort of looking forward at purposeful involvements? Well, the way, the way that I, I see it is I, I, I identify with recovery because it's important to me to be able to elevate other narratives hmm. of recovery and to make that available and to be able to be a role model for what that can look like gotcha and inspire other people to yeah. take on their own personalized journey 
of recovery. I mean, my, my journey has been 14 years and I say that I've recovered. I do. I believe in the, you know, kind of like, there's like a, if, they, if you were to say there's chronic disease, there's also remission, right? So I believe that if, you know, there is such a thing as chronic disease and I'm in a period of remission. And I feel like if, if what we measure to be the disease is the result of like the, the social conditions, the, you know, the individual biology and the reaction to the social conditions and all of the other stuff kind of combined producing that kind of an outcome, then by maintaining a healthy lifestyle and a lifestyle of balance and being connected to all these things is my panacea. That's my ability to maintain my wellness for as long as it's possible. And ultimately I recognize like, you know, my journey has a finite life shelf, you know, shelf life. And someday my health is not going to be as good as it is today, hmm. but at least I have the, the awareness, you know, the self-awareness, the mindfulness and the tools to be able to get the most out of it and enjoy it. And I don't have to come from a place of fear. I don't have to avoid things for fear of triggers or relapse. I mean, I've done things that would, you know, boggle the minds of, you know, people who followed traditional recovery paths. <laughs> yeah. You know, working in underground safe consumption centers and helping people and reversing overdoses and bringing people back to life. Like, literally having the gift of miracles be present in my life because I've chosen to take that on. That's been one of the gifts because I don't have to live from a place of fear. I don't have to constantly look behind me to see what's going to come up and get me because that's not how life happens. Like that's, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've done a lot of work on myself where, where I see if I'm running from the past, it's actually what I'm running towards. Yeah. Um, and, and so I just see an open space for me to be able to create my future, whatever that looks like, with or without drugs. It's, it's inconsequential, really. Right. But what's more consequential to me are the relationships that I have and the experiences that I share with the people that I care about. And then ultimately the legacy that I get to leave behind. And, and if that legacy is, you know, built on me sharing my story, so other people can stop making war on people and doing real actual harm to people in this country and to be more compassionate and to be more understanding, then that's the legacy that I want to be a part of. And you, um, as I guess a hobby in your own life and as, and for work are helping people come to this kind of conclusion on their own terms. I've watched now generations of people. I have people that I've helped that are helping people that are helping people. I mean, it's like <laughs> grand helpers. <laughs> and it's funny cause that's, that's the, you have grand helpers, you great grand helpers. <laughs> you, um, you, like you said, you're not, you, if you really had some sort of uh, chronic illness, that is addiction or something that, that needed to be dealt with in a, in a traditional sort of way, you wouldn't be able to do the kinds of things you do. Like by theory, you wouldn't be supposed to be able to work at a, a safe consumption site and reverse overdoses. It would be just too triggering for you. You'd, you know, you'd 
very quickly you run into oblivion because you'd be using drugs again or you wouldn't be able to take opioids after your surgery or drink a smoothie with alcohol in it there's just so many things that you do consciously and that you've done and that just happened to you seem to just fly in the face of what a lot of people think it has to mean in order to recover and i don't just say that because like it's an that's the that's the nice story that i like to tell because it resonates with me i say it because as you mentioned before that i that whole i guess 12 step notion or complete abstinence notion maybe i'd say it's just not a reality for a lot of the for a lot of people and it's not i wouldn't even recommend it to a lot of people and you know a lot of the people i'm talking about are people in the same situations as you're talking about with maybe some bad moral luck and who knows when they find themselves in the position where drug use even if it's chaotic in some circ- in some ways is actually life enhancing and life saving in other ways well and even just looking back on on those experiences with what i know now i mean could it have been aging out you know the time in my life that i just happened to have these experiences is a time when a lot of people exit from problematic substance use. And, you know, if you look at, you know, broad trend study data, if you put the life satisfaction continuum side by side with the problem, the problematic substance use continuum. And I mean, they just flip flop. Your your quality of life goes up, you know, problematic substance use goes down. And very true. When you look at it in this very common sense kind of way, like, you know, people do what they do for a reason, for their own reasons. And and for me, the, the, the real, I guess, the real um, thing that hurts my heart the most is, is that we've allowed human experiences to be taken away from people and human rights to be taken away from people. And for families and for children and communities to be harmed to the extent where it's hard for people to trust the government that's put in place to serve them by them. Yeah. It, it's, it's such a paradoxical situation and, and we've collapsed the consequences of the drug war into the consequences of substance use. I mean, this is like, yeah. You know, typical Ryan's BTV theory, like textbook, blaming the victim. And I am a product of that system. I hold all of the experiences that I've had, both substance use and recovery is valid. And I also recognize that my ability, my personal resilience and just the luck and the people I happen to meet and the circumstances that I happen to be in, it's, it's a, against all odds that I'm even alive today. And I am an anomaly as far as being a product of that system. Yeah. And, and for me to say that I have to be able to be willing on some level to recognize that that is the output of the system. And that's not a disease. Yeah. What the last two, I'll just cap it here because I feel like I'm starting to get worried that I could easily take this into like another three hours of discussion. I want to be just like respectful to the viewers and listeners and respectful to your time too, but I'll I'll ask two more questions and uh, they could be interesting. What, here's two things. What, what is the, 
like grandest bit of mythology that your experiences alone debunked like the most amazing thing that you just believed wholeheartedly that you uh, were only convinced wasn't true by your own experience and then this the second thing is what's what do you feel is the most purposeful thing that you do now in your life well i have to say that i've had a really transformative journey around what i was taught as a person in recovery like what happened you know in fellowships and what happened in terms of indoctrination in specific literature and in particular there's there's a part of the literature that talks about um what happens when a person experiences this change of personality and so there's two changes of personality that are referenced there's one that talks about this change of personality when people use substances and there's a whole narrative around that and then there's this other change of personality and there's like a light in the eyes and and people see somebody as different right when somebody's recovered yeah and i had seen a lot of those experiences i had actually seen them not everybody certainly but i had seen some so there was some evidence so it wasn't until I had been doing some work with the RCO in Rhode Island and I was doing interviews for the governor's task force to look at how to engage people who use drugs in uh, participating in the task force. So my boss had come to me and asked me to do some research. So I did some field research. I started calling around and I discovered these groups called users unions. And I thought it was strange that like such things existed and I had not been aware of them and I had done volunteer service and harm reduction and thought it was really strange that nobody knew what these things were. And I asked a bunch of people and nobody knew what they were. And so they were like, wow, that's really interesting. Well, why don't you go find out more? So I, I made some calls and it wasn't, you know, many calls before I, I actually ended up calling somebody I knew who happened to have been a co-founder of a drug users union. I had no idea. Uh, her name is Jess Tilly. And I had a long history with Jess Tilly because she actually was the person who first trained me on how to administer Narcan when I first started volunteering at, at the Wyndham Harm Reduction Coalition when I was in early recovery. Um, and so it was actually in my time. So kind of a result of that conversation was like, hey, you're somebody I know. You're somebody I trust. You're somebody I like to work with. Why don't you help us out with, you know, running a drug users union in Rhode Island? We need one. Go into my boss, said, hey, my friend thinks I should do X, Y, Z. What do you think? She was like, uh, let me go talk to the board about this. So she comes back. We talk about it in our next staff meeting. Everybody's super excited. So I start leading this drug users union. Uh, so we started the Rhode Island users union. We became a 501c3 in 2017. And I led that organization for about two years until I came to the state of New York where I am now. Um, but it was actually what happened during the course of leading that organization that shattered some of this myth for me. Because I had never experienced people have this kind of like transformational experience, really in, in most other ways. Like people kind of like went through natural shifts or 
they just, you know, decided they were going to moderate or reduce use. I had experienced all kinds of those types of outcomes from, you know, people choosing to live more healthy. But I hadn't seen a transformative experience happen. Um, and so while I was leading the Rhode Island Users Union, what I noticed amongst the core group of people that I was working with, you know, the people who ultimately became our first operating board of directors, the people who were involved in doing a lot of the volunteer and direct service. Um, we had done a number of really cool direct actions with like Nan Golden. We went down to Washington, DC. We did a lot of stuff to really empower this group, right? Is what I'm getting at. And what I started to hear back from the people in this group, even though none of them had stopped using drugs, was that they were starting to hear back things from people around them, from their family members, the kinds of things that I was used to hearing people say about somebody after they got into a 12-step recovery and this thing happened, started happening for people who were still actively using drugs and never even been to a meeting, but were involved in doing union organizing and making a difference in their community. And I started to hear this stuff come back and then it was, it was one day, it was actually right before we were going down to Channel 3 to um, sit in on a, a, it was basically a televised conference talking about something, you know, to do with what the needs of people who use drugs were. And there was not one person who used drugs on their panel. So we wanted to make sure people who use drugs were in the house. So we were going to go down as a group and we went down to the RCO to do a self-advocacy training. And we were sitting in the room and everybody started to introduce themselves. And one after another, every single one of these people who was with the union started to identify themselves as a person in recovery. These were people who had ever done anything else. You know, they just started like being actualized, like actually taking care of themselves and doing something for themselves in their community. And it became a part of their identity that they identified that way because besides abstinence, everything else that they were doing was the same. It, you know, people were engaged in making their lives better and making more meaningful connections. They had a community of like-minded people that they were involved with. They were making a difference. We got a law passed. We created a whole new sector of public health programming. I mean, we had a lot of successes. We're back and forth to the state house all the time. It was incredible. And for me, that was really amazing because I had never seen that kind of transformation happen from people being organized in a drug users union. And it blew my mind. It was not something I ever would have expected in a million years to have experienced that that was a way to transform people. Ooh. So does that count as an answer to both of those questions, I guess? It's like, that sounds like the, that is the kind of answer I was hoping for. I mean, that's the kind of mythology that if you think about recovery as stopping using drugs, you'll never get there. But you you notice that the things you want out of recovery, things you hope for and pray might happen if you get involved in a program long enough, happened for these people. And actually what brought everyone together is the fact that they use drugs. And that yeah. is amazing. Would you count that also as, as like the most purposeful thing that you do now, like as organizing that group, or was something else? 
I mean, the, the most purposeful thing that, that I've been able to do, and this has been very recent, uh, this is a, a product of, of, of some of the work that I've done very, very recently. I was able to work with some people. I, I have a group of folks that I've been kind of working with here in New York for a little bit over a year. I started working here in September. So one of the first young men that, that I worked with, you know, he's, he's a young man, person of color, you know, lived kind of the urban lifestyle, um, walked into the program on day one, and I immediately identified with him because I came in from the street culture. When I first came into the, the drug court, like I didn't really feel like I belonged. I was a hustler. I was a seller. I was, you know, a wise guy. I was, I was all these other things. Like I didn't belong with these people. That was my mentality when I first came around that stuff. And part of that was just the identity I had built up through survival. Like that's just part of what it was. I didn't develop that relationship. Um, but I saw something in him that reminded me of myself. And so over time, you know, I did a whole bunch of these like groups and I taught people this whole other dimension of recovery that included union organizing, that included service, that included, you know, having a community of being involved with that community. And we ended up creating this really cool service focused group called the Restoration League. And they chose their own name. And it was actually started by some of the groups that I was running in the jail. So it was really cool for the people in the jail to come out of the jail and realize like they had actually created something that was real out in the world that was happening. So like that experience was pretty incredible, but it was actually even later down the road than that, that it gets really cool. Um, because, you know, one of the people that I worked with through that experience who kind of started in a place where like very, very resistant to this idea of even being involved, um, ended up coming through a process becoming more involved, doing a lot of service work, meeting the mayor, we've got pictures of the mayor, um, ended up having an opportunity come up for them to actually get offered a paid position to go down while on drug court. Probation authorized it, the drug court magistrate authorized it, um, the health department, because of my role, what I do, partnered and actually got this person down to the Urban Survivors Union to do direct service work and training at this community-led program in Greensboro, North Carolina, in preparation to go do work, direct service work, supporting another organization called the Tennessee Recovery Alliance down in Knoxville, Tennessee. And this really cool kind of workforce development, transformative experience just emerged. I never would have in a million years thought of the, the court, the probation department, health department, and the National Drug Users Union all working together to create an experience of empowerment for one person. And the outcome of that was like, this person was able to facilitate uh, one of the national calls and learn the skills to be able to do that and, and touch other people's lives. And that was shared back on that call that these are people they've been trying to reach for years had not been able to reach in the way that this person sharing that story about their experience had. And it was a way of showing people what was possible as far as transforming our approach to the drug war and as far as our, our systems and what's possible for people in the realm of transformation. It was really incredible 
to watch and and what what he shares about how important the service work has become to him on his personal path of recovery and being around people who use drugs and working directly with the drug users union and still being able to make good and healthy choices even in the middle of all that like i'm seeing now another generation of people going out into the field equipped trained ready to do the work and i now have you know systems that i never would have thought of in a million years bought into that people who you know would have been putting people into prison are now offering people opportunities and i see something that's really powerful and it's just kind of in its infancy here because this is you know again one experience but it was one really good experience and i mean the outcome was this person's charges were dropped from a pretty serious felony to a misdemeanor they were released without supervision so they could go travel for work. I mean, this was like a miracle happening for this person. And I got to just watch that empowerment work just take root and, and, and see them really step into that and discover themselves newly and give something back to the community that could ultimately change a lot as far as what we believe is possible. Uh, that to me is the most profound piece of work that I've done because I've spent years trying to, you know, make, make changes to the narrative yeah. that reinforces the drug war yeah. and, and to unpack a lot of that, you know, we, we created drug checking programs to basically create consumer rights and consumer safety. Um, I wrote a law in 2018 that allowed that. So I've been kind of making some incremental gains but this was a really significant cultural shift. And we did this inside of a very conservative Republican administration. So it wasn't like the typical action system that we see, like, you know, the squad trying to do something cool like this. This was like somebody in a different ideology in a different system, just actually practicing humanism and pragmatism and, you know, creating something that's effective and, and being able to follow that and produce that kind of an outcome. And now there's this really powerful transformative story that I, I wanted to share because it's important. I feel like people, people like you, like become self-actualized and feel like they're living a worthwhile, great life when you're giving so much and not it, like, not just that you're feeding a system or something like that or giving because you've heard that it's a good idea to give this way, but giving in a way that you see and feel and experience the rewards for doing so for other people and for you. And so I'm really thankful for everything you're doing and for yourself, for the community, for generations of people to come probably. And I don't know, I, I think that a lot of people, you know, I, I teach and I, the students I've had that have just been from utterly privileged families and had every gift in the world given to them and had straight A's and gone. I know that they will be just the same kind of people who are looking for something like this, looking for a lifestyle, like what you have now. And uh, you found it in a sort of a zigzag way that I wouldn't necessarily recommend to people, but I'm, I'm really glad that you found <laughs> it. I mean, even, I mean, I'm surrounded by these really strange stories, yeah. you know, like even my partner's little brother, his story is just, unbelievable and and he found his transformation through getting connected to cannabis gardening because he was really passionate about growing cannabis i literally gave this kid the keys to my house and i left to new york to basically live with my partner's parents i've never even lived with my own parents as, as like 
you know, a person old enough to really remember what that was like. Yeah. So that was a weird experience, but just like creating an opening for him to be able to follow his dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, that's what that's one of the things that you're that I'm really resonating with is that you're giving people room enough to just grow as human beings rather than policing them and being you know micromanaging them and telling them bizarre stories that are actually counter to <laughs> oh man dude the way it's brought this whole family together around their son like they're all involved in the gardening they're all learning from him they're like getting a new respect for him you know it's like they're they're like all in it's like exciting and new and 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 he's come alive in a way that the, even his mom was like i've never seen him like this before you know, my partner just got home. If she was down here, I could ask her and she would probably tell you, you know, but it, it, it's just amazing to see this work take root with people. And it's all in different ways. So I'll just be what's important to somebody. Who am I to say that, like, you know, cannabis gardening can't be something that's really good for somebody? Because it is. I've watched it happen. Your first principles kind of guy. You've had lived the lifestyle to be able to let you do that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and it's also just like, knowing myself and checking in and letting go of my own prejudgments and my own biases and just really creating a space for people to discover themselves newly. I was just talking about Kyle. I'm, oh. I'm actually doing an interview with, um, with Zach, Zach Rhodes. Oh, awesome. Yeah. It's being recorded. Just FYI. Okay. You're a star. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, I'll let you go. You have a you have a solid life to live, and you're a busy guy, and I want to let you do that. I just thank you so much for spending time talking about this. And I know it takes a while to like unpack a kind of worldview like you or like I have. So it was worth it for me, and hopefully it was for you too. And I appreciate it. And I like I knew that you and I. There are just a few things that you said in passing that I knew that we shared an idea about what makes life worth living, and that. It could include drugs. It could not include drugs, but it's, that's sort of the wrong question. Uh, I think I, Freud was like, what's the meaning of life? And he said to love and to work. And then there's someone from Sam's, I forget her name. You probably know better that I was talking about, like, what do people want when they ask for help? A job, a roof over your head, and a date on Saturday night or something like that. <laughs> and that's it's pretty basic. And uh, you've captured that in your whole idea about what it means to help people. And if, I think for yourself too. And I appreciate it. And thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks, Ben. All right, brother. <laughs>